Well, I don't know how many of you took note of the Powerball drawing last night, but some of you did, didn't you? Almost $950 million were at stake. Nobody won. So it's going to roll over, and people are going to go even more crazy over this lottery, and they believe it's going to grow to $1.3 billion and beyond. It's attracted just loads of attention. People have been buying millions of dollars worth of tickets just in the last few days. But you know what's so amazing is the odds of winning are so minuscule, one in a 292 million. I mean, the odds of winning the lottery are astronomical. Uh, If you bought 50 tickets every week for your life and lived to be 100 years old, you would have to live 112,000 lives before you won. The odds are that you're going to get struck by lightning, not just once, but twice before you'd win the lottery. So I'd be more concerned about that than winning the lottery. And yet, there's a part of us who are just fascinated by this. It's this opportunity to grab a hold of something. You know what? There was one tweet that someone sent out that was, that was so true, that there are people who say, I'm not going to vote in the political election because one vote doesn't make a difference. But one ticket could. <laughs> really. What, what fascinates us about this? Now, some of you may have bought tickets, and I know you, you probably got one because you thought, You can't win if you don't play. Just what if God wants me to win? I can't win if I don't have a ticket, right? And so we fantasize about what would happen if we'd win. How we'd pay off our mortgage, our student loans, get that cosmetic surgery, um, drink Starbucks coffee instead of my homebrew. You know, all the stuff you could do if you had, you know, millions and millions of dollars. But study after study has shown that the, the impact of winning the lottery on personal happiness is a big fat zero. And that the greater likelihood is that you'll be less happy if you win. And that people who win larger amounts actually find it harder to be content in their lives. You know, we're looking for that one answer. I know a man in the Bible who won a lottery of sorts. He became the richest man of his time, maybe the richest man who's ever lived. He wrote a book about what it did to his life. He wrote a a short section of scripture that tells us what he discovered about personal happiness and what makes a person find joy in life. It's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is part of a section of scripture known as wisdom literature. It includes Proverbs, Song of Solomon, the book of Job. It deals with hard realities of life with, with, with nuggets of truth that help guide us to deal with the painful things of life. And you might not be familiar with much about the book of Ecclesiastes, except if you're a little bit older, you probably remember a song by the birds, a group called the birds, called Turn, Turn, Turn. That song is almost verbatim taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a season for everything under heaven. And so the writer of this book asks questions like, what's the meaning of life? Where is it all going? Is there anything new under the sun? What will I get if I live a good, clean life? What happens after we die? Now, I don't care whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, that all of us go through life asking some of those very same questions, wrestling with it. Even Christians sometimes often find ourselves at a place where life seems like such a struggle. We feel like that, that gerbil in the cage or the gerbil in the wheel, you know, that runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and finally stops and says, I didn't get anywhere. And we expend all kinds of energy for education, for jobs, and we get through life, and we work out at the gym, and we get to a point of life and say, you know, what did I gain from all this? 
Seems like my life's filled with conflict and disappointment and heartache, frustration. Is that all I'm going to get out of life? And what Ecclesiastes does for us is doesn't give us pat answers. But what it does is almost one after another shoots down the typical pursuits of life, showing the dead end of that pursuit and showing how this really doesn't lead to happiness and where this path leads. He basically eliminates every other option and leaves only one remaining option. The option we're really going to find as we go through this book of Ecclesiastes because life leaves us hungry for more, hungry for something deeper, hungry for something that gives greater meaning. And if you don't know what that is, I I pray that as we go through this series more than ever before, you'll find out the answer to that pursuit. But before you ever will do that, you'll need to open your heart to God. And so I'm going to ask all of us to do that right now in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us through this ancient book written 3,000 years ago, but that speaks truth that resonates in the human heart today. I pray, Lord, that it would penetrate deeply and draw us to that place where we trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read, actually, the entire first chapter. If you don't know where it is, Psalms is about right in the middle of your Bible. The next book after that is Proverbs. The next book is Ecclesiastes. And here's what I encourage you to do. Follow with me today, but then through the rest of the week, start reading through this book yourself. Go back over chapter one. Pray that God would speak to you through this. There's some profound things in this book, and that's what we're going to uncover as we go through it today. Starts with verse one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing in the ear, it's fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here long before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. Now, how's that for your Sunday morning pep talk? (laughs) Who's this guy writing all this anyway? Who's the author of this book? Like, a lot of books of the Bible will start off saying who the author is. But... When you open up this book, he doesn't come right out and say his name, but he gives us all these clues. He's the son of David. He was a king over Israel. He possessed great wisdom and knowledge and leads us to 
conclude that this is none other than King Solomon. King Solomon, if you don't know who he is, he was the son of David. He was this product of an affair David had with a neighbor lady named Bathsheba. Her husband was off at war, and David saw her bathing and said, man, I want her. So he, he had her brought over, um, had sex with her, thought that was going to be one and done, but uh, down the road, a knock at the door, revealed to him that she was pregnant. So he decided to eliminate the problem. Problem, not the baby. He decided to abort the husband, had him murdered, and then married the woman to make it look legitimate. So she had the baby, and the baby died. But they had other children, including this child named Solomon. And when David became old and gray and decided to pass the baton of leadership of the kingdom over to one of his sons, he chose Solomon to be that one. Now, Solomon was a very special young man. And you know how special he was, and, and even the wisdom at his age, God asked him that he could make a request for anything, and he would grant it. Kind of like that genie in a bottle, he got one wish. What would it be? And you could think what you would ask for. But he didn't ask for fame. He didn't ask that all of his enemies be silenced. He didn't ask for wealth. What he asked for was this. God, give me a discerning heart so that I may lead your people well. And God was so impressed by that that God says, not only will I give you wisdom far greater than any man who has ever lived, but I will make you wealthier than any man who's ever lived. And so Solomon became this incredible man of wisdom. People came from all over the world to sit at his feet, to hear his teachings. You've, you've seen some of his teachings or read some of them in a book called Proverbs. Proverbs records the wisdom of this man, a lot of nuggets of spiritual truth. He was not only the wisest man who lived at the time, he was the wealthiest man. In fact, I looked online to see how wealthy Solomon was, and on one website that lists the top 10 richest human beings that have ever lived on planet Earth, At the top of the list was King Solomon. Estimated value, $2 trillion. He received in annual kind of pay 25 tons of gold. That's a lot of gold. In fact, it was so much gold that that his whole palace was coated with gold, pure gold. All the kitchen utensils were made of pure gold. I mean, they, they, they ate their leftovers, if you ever had leftovers, on gold plates with gold spoons and forks. And silver, which was pretty valuable to most people, um, was so uh, outnumbered by the gold that silver was considered almost a throwaway. So Solomon had incredible wealth. And you know what you get when you're a person of that, that kind of fame, reputation, that person of great wealth? You get anything you want. And a lot of men in those positions get a lot of women. Women come flocking to him. He had, he had the Bible says, 700 wives, and 300 concubines. I find it interesting that the word concubine sounds a lot like porcupine, and both are pretty prickly things. <laughs> if you don't know what a concubine is, here's the bad news. It's, it's someone who's not your wife, but basically she's your sex slave. She's your sugar baby. She gets the monetary benefit of living under your care, and you get the, whatever benefit you have from that woman. Solomon had 1,000. You can already see the cracks in his wise thinking. I mean, it's hard enough being married to one woman. I can't imagine 700 wives trying to make them all happy. I mean, you, know, you can only have dinner with, with, with each one every two years. 
So this is going to be a really tough job, and, and Solomon makes some mistakes. And it just goes to show that it's one thing to record wisdom. It's another thing to live with wisdom. And I think we know that. I think, I think we've experienced that in our own lives. How many of you grew up with parents who tried to teach you the right thing to do as teenagers or young adults, and you decided you're going to do it differently? <laughs> you know, probably all of us, right, if we're honest? We want to figure it out for ourselves. And so after the school of hard knocks, we come back and say, okay, Mom and Dad, you're right. I should have done it this way, but I needed to learn for myself. And so we're trying to teach our kids, don't do what I did. Don't make the dumb mistakes I made. And yet they want to make the dumb mistakes you made. It's just like that's just the way people are. We're all stubborn, and we learn the hard way. And he learned the hard way. And that's why these wives began to lead him down a path to stray from God. And eventually God lifted his blessing from him. Seems amazing. Here's a guy that in modern society would be considered an incredible success. A combination of Billy Graham, Dr. Phil, Donald Trump, and Hugh Hefner, all wrapped into one person. <laughs> That's King Solomon. You know, he seems to have, have it all, but having it all, he finds out, is it enough? It's not enough to make someone happy. And that's the truth you'll find in Ecclesiastes. The things that our culture says make a person happy, that make life worthwhile, really don't. So what does he conclude? What does Solomon find out as he records this? Well, he doesn't waste any time getting to his conclusion because his very first words are these. Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He concludes that life is dark and depressing. It's dark and depressing. Not only is it meaningless, he, he emphasizes it by repeating it. Some of your Bibles say vanity of vanities. And then he says that everything is vanity. And he's been watching very closely how human behavior goes. He, he looks at patterns in people's lives. He looks at nature and what's taking place in nature. And he comes to these conclusions, not only from his observation, but from personal experience. He looks at, if a person lives this way, how does it end down the road? He says, if a person starts off with initial happiness, does that happiness last a long time? He, he, he starts to accumulate all this information, and at the end of the day, he says, you know what? It's hopeless. It's meaningless. It's dark and depressing, and you cannot do anything about it. And it may make you think for a moment that if that's true, then I should take my life. But I want you to know this. As hopeless as he starts off, I think he's just getting us, let's get it all out in the open right at the beginning. And I'm going to explain it as I go along, but it's right here at the beginning. He never gives us an option, a good option, to take your life. He's trying to tell us something. Here's where I think Solomon shows his wisdom. He's wise enough to admit, hey, I screwed up. I messed up. I had it all going for me. I had God's favor, God's wind at my back, and I threw it away. And I learned some hard lessons. And I want you to learn from my mistakes. That's why I think he calls himself throughout this the teacher. He doesn't leverage his role as king as much as he says, I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm one who's learned some things about life that I want to pass on to you. But he asked some tough questions. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do you get for all this? I mean, you go and you work a job 40, 50 hours a week to do what? To buy a house. To buy a house that then you have to upkeep and maintain. 
It has appliances that break down. It has lawns that have to be watered and mowed and weeds that have to be pulled. And you know what? When my wife and I moved into our house that we've been in, we've been in for 10 years, I thought when we moved there, I'm done with taking care of the yard. And I have to do more yard work at this new place we live in than I did at my old place. And I feel like I'm a servant to that. You, you get a car and you think, well, great, I got a car. I have freedom. I can get places. And then I need new tires and oil changes and, and rotors have to be um, uh, ro- sanded down. I need all these things done to my car and I become a slave to these things. You know, sometimes I look at people who are retired who decide to sell their house and travel the world in a motorhome to think, you know, that sounds kind of fun. No upkeep, no mortgage. You just travel around, park yourself someplace. Walmart's parking lot, Aunt, you know, Aunt Susie's backyard, you know, the kids. Finally, you pay back the kids. You get to park at their driveway and you just get to spend the time traveling all around. But then I start thinking of the terrible gas mileage. I'm thinking, if that thing breaks down, what will I do? Because I don't know how to take care of a motorhome. And, and it seems like too much of a headache. What do I gain from all this? It just seems like a headache. Early in our marriage, uh, Julie and I were trying to entertain ourselves one night, and I suggested we play this old board game that I played as a kid called Monopoly. I thought it'd be fun to play Monopoly together. Now, some people say that I'm a little bit competitive, but, but you know, when you play Monopoly, the whole goal is to win. The whole goal is to dominate. The whole goal is to get the most properties, to build the most houses, to put up the hotels, and drive your opponents into bankruptcy. That's the point of the game. To have it all. So I had it all. I won. And I lost because we've never played that game again. (laughs) Ever. And you know what was so sad? In my gloating of all the properties and houses and all that that I own, when it was all said and done... We scooped it all up, put everything back in the box. It's it's so symbolic of life. I don't care how big your house is. I don't care how many cars you have. I don't care how many trophies you have in your trophy case. At the end of the day, you and the poorest person on earth will put everything you have in the box. You're not going to take anything with you. In fact, I, I probably shouldn't say you put it all back in the box because really the only thing that's going in the box when you die is you. That's all. I don't care whether you're buried in body or you're cremated. You're going in a box, and it's over. It seems meaningless, doesn't it? It doesn't make sense at all. That's what you're working for. Then he looks around at nature. He says, you know, I've watched the patterns of nature. He says, the sun gets up in the morning, goes down at night, and next day does the very same thing. So the wind comes from, from one, one direction, goes around the earth, and just circulates, and comes back around. The, the, the rivers flow into the ocean or into the sea, and the sea never seems to get too full. just kind of recirculates all around. He notices that all these patterns in nature just are, they're just there. You can't do anything about them. Now, we try to build levees. We try to build buildings that can withstand nature. But all of a sudden, a, a flood comes or a tornado rips through, and we realize, you know what? Nature gets the final word. You have to let nature do its thing. You can't control nature. You adjust your life to nature. So Solomon is observing all these things, and he says it's, it's, it's wearisome, more than one can say. In fact, you know, in the meteorologists, when they predict the weather, and, and they're right quite often. Sometimes they're wrong, but they're right quite often. But they never tell you how to change it. 
They just tell you what you need to do to adjust to it. Stay off the roads, bundle up, you know, put on sunscreen, whatever. But they never tell you, here's what you can do to change that weather today. You can't do that. It's going to happen. Nothing you can do about it. So he uses phrases throughout his book, and they all show up in this first chapter, things like this. Everything is meaningless. That's one of them. Here's another one. It's like chasing after the wind. I mean, think about that. It's like a, a child chasing the wind and reaching and trying to grab it. You get that picture? It's like, what a, what a futile effort. I mean, you can't catch wind. You experience wind, but you can't catch it. If you could catch it, it would stop being wind. You get air in a bottle. But you can't catch wind. You know what's so ironic? There are literally people today who chase the wind. There, there are organizations or businesses you can pay that will take you on a safari or a tour to chase a tornado. And people will pay big bucks to go watch this devastating act of nature rip up trees from their roots and flatten houses that people have spent their lives investing in. And if that's you, if that's what you call a good time, I feel sorry for you. Chasing after the wind. It's, it's meaningless. It's, it's futile. But you know what? There's another phrase he uses, and this is the key to understanding Ecclesiastes. Here's the key. The phrase, under the sun. It occurs 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon means as he writes about this is when you look at life under the sun, when you look at life from the human perspective, what you can taste, what you can touch, what you can see, what you can smell, all those things, what you can observe is limited. Our lives are limited by the human senses. Science can tell us those things. Philosophy can tell us what can be experienced at this level. We need something beyond this level. We need something not just under the sun. We need something over the sun. We need something beyond the sun. We need more than observation. We need revelation. We need someone who knows the big picture, the full story, to tell us what's going on here. And that's why I believe so much in this book called the Bible. The Bible gives us insight into eternal things from God's perspective. It helps us to see life not just from the human vantage point. There are a lot of books out, self-help books, and books that will tell you how to see things from man's perspective. But the Bible gives us God's perspective, and God's perspective oftentimes is very different from man's perspective. And that's why I just urge you, take some time, get to know this book, listen to the Lord, and it'll change the way you look at life and how you experience it. Now, there's something else he brings out in this first chapter that I think is very profound. He references God, the burden God has placed on man. And when he uses the word God, I'm just going to give you a quick little word lesson here. It's, it's the word Elohim. Elohim is a, is a word translated God in the Old Testament. Another word that's often translated for God is, is the word Yahweh. But when Yahweh is translated, it's usually translated Lord. So here's the difference. Elohim is creator God. It's the God that we look at from a distance. It's the God who's the maker. Yahweh is the God who's the master. It's the one who says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one of the covenant. He's the the one who wants to enter a relationship with you. You know what? As a kid, when I was growing up, I knew God as Elohim. I knew there was a God out there somewhere. I knew there was a God that made this world. I, I knew that, and I knew... That, that he was real and he was there, but he was distant. He was confusing. He was kind of mysterious. And honestly, I found him hard to fully trust. But when I was in 
about 16 years of age, I, just, I, I came to a place where I surrendered my life to him as Lord, as Yahweh. I entered into a covenant relationship with God where he became my Lord, my master. And all of a sudden, I began to understand him so much better. Not only that, I began to trust him so much more fully. God wants you to know him, not just as this God out here. Because you know what? Most people believe in God. But he wants you to know him as Lord, the God who wants to have a personal relationship with you. So what are we to do? What should we do? Here's the key to how we respond to what Solomon is teaching us. There's an alternative to living life under the sun, and it's this. Live life in the sun. Live life in the sun. In the 1600s, there was a French physicist, mathematician, inventor, writer named Blaise Pascal. He wrote about this human hunger for something deeper. In fact, it has become known through history as the God-shaped void or the God-shaped vacuum in the human soul. And he says that people try to fill that with different things like sex and other pleasures and drugs and fame and accumulation and, and recognition and all kinds of things. We try to fill that, and he says it never really satisfies. He, this was his conclusion. An infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite object. In other words, with God himself. You have a God-shaped void that only God can fill. Everything else is like a marble in a canyon. We need Jesus to fill that void in our lives. You know, for years I've heard this phrase, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you've even said it. God will never um, give you anything that you can't handle. Ever heard that? Ever said it? It's a lie. God will allow you to experience things that crush you, things that devastate you, things that expose your inability to handle life. And the reason he does that is this. He wants you to look to him. He wants you to cry out to him that he would be the one that would do it through you, that he would fill that place in our lives. God's not just like a little, a little steroid we can pump in to say, okay, God, do this for me so I can do all my stuff. God wants us humbled before him to cry out. The other day, my wife heard someone, a young man in a food line, say this. He just uttered this phrase to his father. Dad, uh, all religions just want to control people. I've heard that before. It's a phrase that's bantered about quite a bit. Religions just want to control people. And you know what? I understand part of where he's coming from, that, that there are a lot of religions out there that will take weak people and tell them what to believe, tell them what to do, and turn them into robots. But here's the truth. All of us seek to be controlled by someone or something. And, and if it's not yourself, it's somebody else or it's something else. It could be drugs. It could be pot. It could be um, some other addictive behavior that you're using to control, the, to give your life meaning and peace and fulfillment. But God made us to look to him, that we need him to fill that void within our lives. When you choose Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he comes in and fills that void. And he not only has wisdom, Jesus is wisdom. The Bible says in the New Testament that there is one greater than Solomon that's in our presence, and it's Jesus Christ. 
So listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. It says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. Jesus not only has wisdom, he is wisdom. And when he's part of your life, he gives you the true wisdom you need to live your life in the Son. In 1 John, excuse me, not 1 John, in John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Life will seem dark, will seem disturbing, will seem depressing. But when Jesus comes into your life, he not only gives you this new zest for life, it's like he opens your eyes to new truth, to see things in a different way. Now, I'm going to ask our ushers to go ahead and go to the back to get us ready for communion. But I want to share with the rest of you that this morning on my way to church, as I pulled out of our driveway, I was amazed at how foggy it was. I don't know if any of you saw this this morning, but it was extremely foggy at my house. In fact, I couldn't see more than 100 yards in front of me, and I thought, what a day. What a morning. I thought it was supposed to be sunny today. It's just, you can't hardly see anywhere. And so I started on my way to church, drove down Powers, and when I got close to the airport and came around that curve on Powers, it's like I entered into a new world. It's like I got above the clouds. All of a sudden, everything was bright. Everything was sunshiny. I could see for miles and miles. And it just reminded me of what's happened in my life because of Christ. That without Christ, you are looking with limited vision. You see things from the human vantage point, and things don't make sense, and things seem hopeless and dark because all you're seeing is life under the sun. But when you get up higher, when you get to this other place, when you live life in the sun, ah, things look so beautiful. Things look different. You say, God, now I get it. Now I understand. This is the way you meant it to be because God made the world. God made us to live in this world. He sees the beginning and the end. He knows how everything works. It makes sense to live life in the sun. And that's why we need Jesus. Do you ever feel like you're in that cage like a gerbil running around and around making no progress? It's time to get off the wheel and time to walk down a path, a path that takes you in one direction. That one direction is to Jesus Christ, who is the doorway to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is so vivid when Jesus died on the cross because up to that point when people went to the temple, in the temple was this room called the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. And what separated God's presence from the people was this curtain that was several inches thick. It, it, it just symbolized that there's a wall between God and man. But when Jesus died on the cross, this happened at the precise moment Jesus died on the cross. That temple curtain was miraculously torn from top to bottom. It's as if the strong hands of God from heaven reached down and ripped that curtain apart and now said, you all can come in. Access to God is open now because of what my son just did on that cross. And that's why every Lord's Day we gather for the Lord's Supper, communion, to remember what was accomplished through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Because not only was Jesus' body ripped open on the cross through the spikes and the spear put in his side, what he was doing was making a way for us to get back to God. A way for us to know him, not just as this God way out there, a distant God, a confusing God, a mysterious God, but a Yahweh God, the God of the covenant, the God who says, I want a relationship with you. This relationship is built on this new covenant established in the blood of my son.